I'm going to teach on something I haven't taught in a, in a good while. I don't know exactly how long, but it seems to me like it's been a long time. And that is our twofold redemption. Isaiah 53 is uh, known of as the Messianic chapter. It's uh, every um, uh, every group, everybody that believes in Jesus agrees that the 53rd chapter of Isaiah is talking about the Messiah to come, meaning the Messiah to come that was yet to come in uh, in Isaiah's day when he prophesied these things and spoke about them. And he gives us information about uh, what the Messiah would do for us. Uh, for them, it was a pointing, looking forward to what the Messiah would do. For us, it's a looking back at what he has done. So we'll start reading here in, um, well, let's just start in verse 1. It says, Who has believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him, meaning Jesus shall grow up before the Father, as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. In other words, Jesus wasn't the best-looking guy around. It wasn't physical beauty that attracted people to him. Verse 3, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Now, hold your finger here. We're going to come back to Isaiah 53, but turn with me over to Matthew chapter 8. There are a couple of words that are used here in Isaiah 53, uh, verses, um, uh, well, 3, 4, and 5, uh, well, no, 3 and 4, that um, uh, that are translated, well, I don't want to say mistranslated, but they're, they're translated, um, it's strange the way they're translated. Maybe that's the best way to go about it. Notice how that uh, Matthew said, as he was inspired by the Holy Ghost, refers back to what Isaiah was saying. And this is a, a, a general understanding that everybody had, uh, all the Jews had at, uh, in the times of Jesus and, well, forever, still today. But notice in Isaiah chapter 8, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 8, uh, look at verses 16 and 17. It says, when the evening was come, they brought unto him, brought unto Jesus, many that were possessed with devils. And he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick. That it might be fulfilled. In other words, he's saying this is the fulfillment, this action, these, these things that took place, the healing of the multitude, uh, the healing of all that were sick, was the fulfillment. This shows what Isaiah was saying, in other words. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah, that's Isaiah the prophet, saying himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. Now, if you look to the book of Isaiah, the only time that, G, that Isaiah ever prophesied anything about Jesus taking anything was what we just read in Isaiah chapter 53. Now, let me go back to the Isaiah 53 and read again from the King James. Because, as I said, the King James translators did something really unusual, in my opinion. And that is, they translated these two words in verse 3, sorrows and griefs, in a very unusual way. Because the word sorrows is translated pain. The word grief is translated sickness in every other place in the, in the, uh, in the scripture. Now, the, um, the only thing that we've got to go from is the Old Testament because this was written in Hebrew originally. Isaiah 53, or all of Isaiah, all of the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And every other place, uh, well, now let me qualify that. There are, I think, 13 different places where in the Old Testament where this word grief, and I don't know how to say it in Hebrew, but the word that's translated grief here in, in verse 3 and 4, there are 
13 different places in the Old Testament where it's translated sickness. There are five places in the Old Testament where it's translated disease. There are four places in the, in the Old Testament where it's translated grief. Two of them are here in Isaiah 53 and two of them are in Jeremiah chapter 6. Now why in the world, when the translators are translating this word sickness and disease the vast majority of the time in other places where it's used in the Old Testament, why'd they pick griefs to trans, why'd they pick the word griefs to translate here in Isaiah 53 when it's talking about Jesus? We see a New Testament Holy Spirit commentary in Matthew chapter 8 telling us what Isaiah was trying to say. Himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. So therefore, can we assume, would we be right to say that the word griefs that's translated the majority of time, either sickness or disease in the Old Testament, should have been translated sickness or disease here? I believe so. I believe the Holy Ghost is telling us that in Matthew chapter 8. Let me read it to you from some other translations. In the uh, complete Jewish Bible, it says, uh, uh, well, let's just start reading in verse 3. It says, people despised and avoided him, a man of pains, well acquainted with illness. Here it talks about illness rather than griefs. Like someone from whom people turned their faces, he was despised and we did not value him. In fact, it was our diseases he bore, our pains from which he suffered. Yet we regarded him as punished, stricken and afflicted by God. But he was wounded because of our crimes, crushed because of our sins. The disciplining that makes us whole fell on him and by his bruises we are healed. Now I want you to look down with me also in uh, uh, in the, the King James to verse 10. Well, now let's just start. Let's pick up reading in verse 6. We'll read down through verse 10. It says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. Now, this is talking about his time between the crucifixion and his resurrection. It's talking about the three days that he spent in hell. He was cut off from the land of the living. The reason that we know that is because Jesus said in uh, in his earthly ministry, um, they, he was talking to the Jews talk, that were uh, assembled together. He was talking to the Jews about Abraham, their father. And they said certain things, and he referred to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as still being alive. He said, God's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Well, if it says he was cut off from the land of the living, then he couldn't have been in Abraham's bosom because he referred to those people as alive. So to be cut off from the land of the living would have been in the lower compartment of hell that was prepared for those that were spiritually or eternally dead. So it's not talking about being cut off from physical life. It's talking about being cut off from God. He was cut off from the land of the living, and for the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Now, why does he talk about his grave and death in different terms? Because one has to do with physical death, the other has to do with spiritual death. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Notice I'm reading from the King James again. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. Now, this is the root word that's, that uh, of the words that are translated grief in verses 3 and 4. It's a different word, but it's the same root word. So it really basically has the same meaning. 
He has put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prosper, prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Let me read to you verse 10 from the complete Jewish Bible. Yet it pleased Adonai to crush him with illness, to see if he, to see if he would present himself as a guilt offering. If he does, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and at his hand Adonai's desire will be accomplished. Let me read these verses to you from the Jewish Publication Society. Translation. He was despised, verse 3, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of pains and acquainted with disease. And as one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely our diseases he did bear, and our pains he carried, whereas we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded because of our transgressions, he was crushed because of our iniquities, the chastisement of our welfare was upon him, and with his stripes we're healed. Verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to crush him by disease, to see if his soul would offer itself in restitution, that he might see his hand, or see his seed, prolong his days, and that the purpose of the Lord might prosper in his hand. I'll read again from the, um, well, let me read to you from Young's literal translation. Robert Young was uh, the foremost uh, Greek and Hebrew scholar, or foremost Hebrew scholar in his day, the second most noted Greek scholar in his day. And in his translation, he says, beginning in verse 3, He is despised and left of men, a man of pains and acquainted with sickness. And as one hiding the face from us, he is despised and we esteemed him not. Surely our sicknesses he has borne, and our pains he has carried them. And we, we have esteemed him plagued, smitten of God, and afflicted. And he is pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace is on him, and by his bruise there is healing to us. Skip down to verse 10. And Jehovah has delighted to bruise him. He has made him sick. If his soul does make an offering for guilt, he seeth seed, he prolongeth days, and the pleasure of Jehovah in his hand does prosper. Finally, I want to read to you from the, uh, the only translation that's accepted by the Orthodox Jews, the Isaac Lester translation. Uh, verse 4, But only our diseases did he bear himself, and our pains he carried while we indeed esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Yet he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace was upon him, and through his bruises was healing granted to us. Verse 10, But the Lord was pleased to crush him through disease. When now his soul has brought the trespass offering, then shall he see his seed live many days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Now how in the world did the King James translators get sickness and uh, sickness, uh, I'm sorry, griefs and sorrows out of sickness and pains. It's almost, I, I, well, I really hesitate to say this, but I, I, I hope that you understand the, the spirit in which I'm saying it. These verses in the King James seem dishonest to me. Now, I'm, I'm not ascribing some kind of motive. I'm not ascribing some kind of wrong motive to the translators. But you can't miss that by accident. You can see, and, and we just took a few. I've got a bunch of other translations I could have read to you that, that clearly show sickness and disease. The same translators that translated Isaiah 53 translated Matthew chapter 8. So they would see clearly that the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew to write that this is infirmities and diseases. So how in the world could they miss this? And I, I, I um, without question 
in my thinking. You judge it for yourself. But without question, this has robbed the church of healing as much as or more than anything else with maybe with the possible exception of Paul's thorn in the flesh. But that doesn't have anything to do with translation. That just has to do with wrong doctrine, meaning Paul's thorn. But how do you miss that? How do you miss that? I don't have an explanation for it. I do know this. I know that um, uh, that there was a um, a group of ministers that were being sought after to help with a new translation. I won't tell you which one it was, but a new translation of its day in the 1950s. And um, there were uh, a couple of men that were Bible scholars that agreed to be part of this. And they got to Isaiah 53. And the rest of the group said, well, we want to, we want to stay consistent with the King James. Let's, let's stay with sorrows and griefs on this. And the other two said, no, no, you know yourself as Hebrew scholars. You know that that's not what these words mean. These words mean sickness and pains and diseases. It's talking about diseases. It's not just talking about some general sorrows thing. And, and when they, when the, the, the group, and there was a, a committee of them, when the group would not agree to do it, these two men, these two Hebrew scholars, resigned from the committee. They said, we don't want our name on this because that's just wrong. Well, I, I, I can't help but wonder if that was the translator's same position. Now, we don't know too much about who the King James translators were because they were doing it for the king, King James, in his day. But which is reason it's called the King James. It wasn't King James that translated it, certainly. It was, it was the king that had it translated. But what in the world would be the reason for that? What in the world could possibly be the reason for mistranslating that verse of Scripture in that way? And even now, when you try to show people that that's what it is, based on their religious doctrine, based on their religious denominational mindset or whatever it is, they won't accept that it means that, and the words have a lot to do with their resistance. But these words mean sickness and disease. Now, let's go back with that understanding. Let's go back and read them again. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected of man, of men, a man of pains and acquainted with sickness. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely. Now, folks, of all the things in the, in, in the, the 53rd chapter of Isaiah that speak to the work of the Messiah, of all the things that are spoken. There's only one time that the word surely, S-U-R-E-L-Y, is used in this chapter, and it's used concerning sickness. It would seem that God would be more concerned with saying, surely he has borne your sins. But he didn't. I think the Holy Ghost knew that this was going to be the issue, that this was going to be the point of controversy. I believe God looked down through the, the, the years of time, and recognized that people were going to be arguing about sickness, not sins. The one time that the word surely is used, notice in verse 4, surely he has borne our sicknesses and carried our pains. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. Now, folks, I want you to notice there's three things that verse 5 says that Jesus paid for. Sins, both iniquities and transgressions. The difference between those are Adam's sins and your sins. The reason there's a distinction between iniquities and transgressions, if you look up the meanings of the word, there's no difference. It just means wrongdoing. It means error, to miss the mark. Well, what's the difference then in iniquities and transgressions? Well, Jesus paid the price not only for Adam's sin, which brought spiritual death upon all of mankind. He paid the price for your individual sins. 
See, it's easy for us to say, well, if Adam hadn't messed up, we'd have been in good shape. Well, if Adam hadn't messed up, you would have messed up. How do we know? Because you messed up. Because you committed sin too. It's hard for us to get upset with Adam because he just did what we did. So there's no way for us to say that man would have continued in the Garden of Eden if only Adam and Eve hadn't, hadn't failed. No. So then Jesus had to pay a price. And the price that he had to pay was not only the price for Adam's original sin, but if, if you're going to be redeemed, if you're going to be saved from the, the penalty and the consequence of sin, he's got to do something about what you've done personally. That's the difference between transgressions and iniquities. He paid for the original sin and he paid for your individual sins. What else did he do? He was wounded for our transgressions. He's bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. I like one translation that we just read a minute ago. The disciplining for our being made whole. Now this word peace is the word shalom, the Hebrew word shalom. It's kind of an all-encompassing word. It means uh, well-being in every area. That's about the best de- translation or best definition I can give you for it. It means everything. If you if you use the word shalom, people understand that uh, that you're talking about prosperity. You're talking about well-being. You're talking about literally peace, the the emotion of peace. You're talking about doing good in every area of life. And it's not a um, the Jews don't consider something to be the fulfillment of shalom unless you're doing well in every area. For example, if you're poor but you're healthy, they don't consider that shalom. It's well-being in every area, meaning well-being in every area, something that Jesus did that provided for you in every walk of life, in every in every uh, aspect of life. So it says the chastisement or the discipline of our peace, this word peace is translated prosperity in um, math, in uh, Psalm 35, verse 27. It says, let the Lord be magnified, which does have which hath, pro- hath pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. That's the word shalom. So the Jews understood a lot about material inclusion, material blessings included in the word shalom. So it's saying Jesus died for your material well-being just as much as he died for your sins. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not tr- trying to equate those two. I'm not trying to say if you only had one, prosperity is just as important as forgiveness of sins. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is Jesus paid the same price for both. And that price was his blood. So rather than than people criticizing us for believing God for financial and material well-being, why isn't the question asked, why would you reject something Jesus paid for with his own blood? Isn't that a better question? See, people try to put you down for believing for material things. Well, why? Jesus paid for it. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. So you got sins and you got financial well-being, material well-being. Those two things that Jesus paid for. And finally it says, and with his stripes we are healed. And with his stripes we are healed. Now, folks, you can find a verse of Scripture that says that Jesus was made something to carry each one of these penalties. We just read in verse 10, he has made him sick. Literal translation is, he has made him sick. King James says he put him to grief. Literally, it says he's made him sick. Now, that didn't mean Jesus had cancer when he was hanging on the cross. Any more than Jesus committed sin personally 
when he was hanging on the cross. It means that God changed his nature to one of spiritual death. And spiritual death includes three things. It includes separation from God. That's the definition of death, spiritual death. It means separation from God. It means poverty. And it means sickness. The reason we know that is because Deuteronomy chapter 28 tells us that those three things are the curse of the law, the broken law. Galatians 3.13 says Christ has redeemed you from the curse of the law. Well, the curse of the law includes those three things, spiritual death, sickness, and poverty. And those are the three things that Matthew, that uh, Isaiah 53.5 says that Jesus paid the price for. Spiritual death that came about through sins. Romans chapter 5, verse 12, I think it is, says, By one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. In other words, when Adam sinned, disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden, it tells us that that's where spiritual death came in upon mankind. Well, then Jesus has got to pay the price not only for sins, he's got to pay the price for spiritual death, which was the consequence of the original sin. That's what iniquities and transgressions is about. But what else did he pay for? He paid for the other consequences of sin, or the other aspects, characteristics of spiritual death, just like eternal life has characteristics, so does spiritual death. And the characteristics of spiritual death are sin, sickness, and poverty. And that's what Jesus paid for, those three things. So we see in verse 10 of Isaiah 53 that God made Jesus sick. That means he made him to be sick. It doesn't mean that Jesus became sick. It doesn't mean that he had cancer or leukemia or anything else hanging on the cross. It means he paid the price for sickness. The price of sickness was laid upon Jesus. He literally was made to be sick or sickness or disease. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says God made him, Jesus, to be sin for us. Well, how did he do that? We know when it took place. It took place on the cross. We know that at that point, Jesus cried out and said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Well, why would God forsake him on the cross? There's only one answer for that, folks, and that is Jesus became spiritual death itself. He took on the nature of sin and death. And the Bible says that he was made to be it. Now, just as Jesus made the earth in six days, the Bible says Jesus was the creator of the earth, in just the same way that he made the earth in six days or literally recreated the earth, the reason I make that distinction is between verse uh, verse 1 of Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He made the heavens and the earth out of nothing. There was nothing and God made something. But then the story of creation, the Genesis account of creation, is not really a story of, re- of creation. It's a story of recreation. Because he took that which was made ruin, that was covered in darkness and separated from God by the deep, he took that material that whatever was left from God's original creation, and he recreated the earth. That's why he told Adam and Eve to replenish the earth. Well, you can't replenish something that hadn't been plenished before. I know that's not good English, but you understand what I'm saying. Replenish is to refill. You can't refill something that never was full. He didn't say fill the earth. He said replenish the earth. So there had to be something here before. Isaiah 45 verse 18 says God made the earth. He did not create it without or he did not create it in vain, King James says. That's the same Hebrew phrase used in Genesis 1-2, and the earth was without form and void. It literally says in Isaiah 45, verse 18, that God did not create the earth without form and void. Well, then something had to happen to cause the earth to become without form and void. 
which is literally what, I, what Genesis 1-2 says. And the earth became without form and void. So something happened. It was in a state of ruin. And so then God recreated the earth in six days. Well, in the same way, Jesus was created by the Father, literally the Holy Ghost, overshadowing the Virgin Mary. And she gave birth to a son. And so this son was the creation, the physical creation. Uh, don't get me wrong. Jesus preexisted before mankind. He preexisted from the beginning with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. But he was created a man. But then when he was hanging on the cross, when he went to the cross and offered his own life, God recreated him as spiritual death. He became literally became the sacrifice for mankind. So he transferred the sins of mankind over onto Jesus. He transferred the, the sickness of mankind over onto Jesus. He transferred the poverty of mankind over onto Jesus. Now, there's no point in you asking me how that happened. I have no clue. How did God take Jesus' spirit, a righteous spirit on the cross, and make it to be sin and make it to be sickness? And the Bible says the same thing about poverty. Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says, For you know the, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he became poor for your sakes, that you through his poverty might be made rich. Well, when was Jesus made poor? Some people will say, well, Jesus was made poor when he came to the earth. Okay, well, I can accept that, uh, that the earth is, is poor compared to heaven. I can accept that, but that can't be what it's talking about. Because that's not, that didn't provide anything for you. It says Jesus became poor so that you through his poverty might be made rich. It seems to be an exchange. It's implying an exchange, isn't it? It's implying that Jesus did something so that you could have something else. Well, when did Jesus become poor or become poor? That word become literally means was made. Jesus was made poor. When? There's only one time Jesus was ever poor, and that was on the cross. Only one time. Because any time Jesus ran up on physical lack, there were miracles that took place to provide for him, just like God will do miracles to provide for you. And some people will say, try to spiritualize that and say, well, that means Jesus was spiritually poor. Folks, spiritually poor people don't raise the dead. No way could he have been spiritually poor. It's talking about he took upon himself poverty. It doesn't mean that Jesus didn't, uh, didn't have enough here on the earth. It doesn't mean that Jesus lacked for anything. It doesn't mean that at all. Any more than it means when Jesus was made to be sin that he committed sin himself. Or any more than when Isaiah 53.10 says he was, God made him to be sick that he became sick himself. It doesn't mean that. It means he took upon himself the punishment for sin, sickness, and poverty. And in each case there was an exchange. He took upon himself sin. He was made to be sin for your sakes who knew no sin so that you through his sin might be made the righteousness of God. Because he took the price, because he paid the price and was made sin, you were made righteous. Because he was made sick, you were made healed. Because he was made poor, you were made rich. He's talking about an exchange. That's what the Messianic chapter is all about. Otherwise, there is no substitutionary sacrifice. And the real question comes down to this. What did he pay the price for as your substitute? Just sin? But then why is the rest of it in this verse? I remember Brother Hagin telling a story. He was holding a meeting in a certain place. Um, and um, uh, just a few-day meeting, I think it was. And, and uh, uh, he was staying at the parsonage with, a, uh, with the pastor. And one afternoon, there was somebody that came by the parsonage and said, uh, 
Um, Pastor, we want to get Brother Hagen to, to pray. One lady said, we want to get Brother Hagen to pray for my daughter. Now, she was grown. She was in her mid-30s. But, um, but mom brought her by and said, um, well, we can't come to the services. Uh, we've got to uh, drive over to uh, some town, you know, some distance away. Uh, she's got to uh, have some tests. She's going to have a surgery tomorrow, the next day, or whenever it was. And so they came in, got the pastor, got Brother Hagen, brought him into the to the living room there, and everybody sat down. Brother Hagen said he knew immediately that this woman didn't believe in healing, not the mom, but the daughter, and and he just knew it by the Holy Ghost. And so she's sitting there, and and so Brother Hagen said, "Well, okay, you know, we want to help all we can." And so he started trying to talk to her a little bit, and every time he tried to talk to her, the mom would answer. And every time he tried to get some information, the mom would try to give the information. And finally, Brother Hagin said as nice as he could, he said, look, uh, I don't mean to be rude here, but if you're not going to let her talk, you might as well just pack her up and take her own. And she said, well, we're in a real hurry. We've got to drive a distance. We want to get there before dark and, and whatever the case was. And he said, well, ma'am, I'm sorry. If, if you're in that big a hurry, then just go on. Tried to be nice about it, but, you know, finally she shut up. And so then he started asking the daughter about it. And so he said, well, he said, now your mom says you want to be, she wants us to pray for your healing. Do you believe in divine healing? She said, well, to be honest with you, no, I don't. Brother Hagin said, I knew that. That's why I wasn't ready to pray for you. So he talked to her a little bit, found out she was a Baptist lady. They went to the Baptist church down the road. But they heard about this meeting at the full gospel church. And so they were coming by giving God a shot. I think the mother had gotten filled with the Holy Ghost after the kids had uh, had grown up, and so she was a little bit more acquainted with these things, and she believed in healing, but but the, the kids uh, had no knowledge about it, really didn't believe in it at all. And so Brother Hagin then said this. He said, well, he said, I knew that. I knew that you didn't believe in it, didn't believe in divine healing, and if I prayed for you under those circumstances, it wouldn't do a bit of good. He said, but let me ask you a question. Now, I'm not saying it does. Of course, he knew it did. He said, now, I'm not saying it does, but if we found a scripture that said that Jesus paid the price for your healing, would that mean to you that healing belongs to you? She said, well, certainly it would. See, Baptists are taught to believe the Bible. They don't have a clue what's in there. But they're taught to believe the Bible. And that's a good starting point. I don't mean to be critical of, and I'm not making fun. That's a real good place to start from, a lot better place to start from than most people are at. So she said, well, sure, of course it would. He said, well, there's a Bible on the the stand, the coffee table right next to where you're sitting. Pick that up. She picked it up, looked at the back of it, saw it was the Schofield Reference Bible. She laughed or kind of smiled, and she said, well, that's just like my Bible at home. Brother Hagin said, well, good, good. You're familiar with it then. Turn with me to to Isaiah chapter 53. Took her over to these scriptures. And he took her to verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. Didn't try to explain about the words sickness and disease or any of the stuff that we've already gone through tonight. He just took her to verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. She read that out loud. He had her read it out loud. She did. She read it out loud. And when she did, she's, she's kind of looking down at the Bible that's sitting in her lap. And she's kind of, um, she got real quiet. Brother Hagin said, it seemed like a long time, probably just 10 or 15 seconds, but it seemed like forever. He said, finally, she looked up. She kind of had tears in her eyes. She said, you know, Brother Hagin, the Bible does say that healing belongs to me. You just lay hands on me. I will be healed. Healing belongs to me. Well, Brother Hagin laid hands on her. and She was healed. She didn't have to borrow the money from her mom to have the operation. She didn't have to go through the whole thing. She simply accepted it. Now, if she had taken that and said, yeah, I see that the Bible says that, but 
and come up with some reason why it didn't belong to her, then it wouldn't have worked. But she simply received her healing. Now, here's the question. How did she go from not believing in healing a few moments earlier to believing in healing and receiving? The answer is very simple. The word is the answer. The word of God is the answer. Did you notice in verse one? We started in verse one of Isaiah 53. Did you notice how it starts, how this messianic chapter starts? Notice it. It says, who has believed our report? Isn't it interesting that the Bible would talk about what all Jesus is going to do for us, what all he has done, and start the chapter off by saying, who's going to believe this? That's an important question, folks, because the ones that are going to believe it are the ones that are going to reap the benefits of it. Who has believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Notice the connection there. The people that are going to see the power of God to change their lives, whether it's their their spirits being made new, whether it's their financial situations being turned around because Jesus paid the price for that, or whether it's their bodies that become healed and receive healing. The answer of who is going to see the arm of the Lord and revealed or who's going to see the power of God in demonstration is coming, comes down very simply to the ones that believe the report. And that's the choice of the individual. You know, I think we make a mistake sometimes by praying for people too quick. Everybody wants to be prayed for. Everybody finds out something about healing. They'll hear from their neighbor or hear from somebody at their church or whatever the case is. They find out that we pray for the sick and boy, everybody wants to come be prayed for. But I find that the Lord really doesn't direct us very often to pray for the sick. He deals with us more to teach on healing than he does to minister healing. Let me tell you a story about, uh, um, oh, what's the guy's name? Uh, lost his name. No, I know, I know the names of certain people. I'll tell you the story and, and get around to it. There was a, an, uh, an English preacher. And this English preacher was coming over to the States. He was known for, uh, for healing. Uh, and, uh, and the, the headlines, he was coming to San Francisco and they had to travel by boat in those days. And so he was coming over from San, to San Francisco and the, the newspapers found out about it. Some way or another, the newspapers found out. And the headlines in the city papers were, Healer comes to America. Well, you can imagine that stirred up quite a, uh, an interest. And so, uh, he comes to, to the States. And they get him off the boat and start checking him into the hotel and that type of thing and get him into his room. And the, the hotel manager comes up to his room and says, you know, you, you're going to have to help us with this. We don't know what to do. It was Dowie. It was John Alexander Dowie the first time he came over from uh, uh, from England or Scotland, really. And he came over to the States and uh, and the hotel manager says, we've got a problem. This was in, um, well, what would it have been, uh, 18, late 1800s, 1890s, something maybe, somewhere around there. And um, uh, anyway, the hotel manager says, we've got a problem. There are people lined up for four blocks away in every direction because they saw the headlines and found out you're going to be here. And so he says it's blocking traffic. Of course, traffic was different in those days, horse and buggies and stuff like that, I guess. But he said it's blocking traffic. It's creating a problem. The police are involved. What are we going to do? And now he said, well, just start bringing people up to the room. Just bring them up one at a time and I'll deal with it. Well, you can well imagine that it took a long time. He saw 253 people before he ever prayed for a person. But when the 254th person came in, it was somebody that had dropsy or, or limbs or as an um, elderly black lady. 
Her limbs were swollen. Her feet were swollen so much she couldn't wear shoes. She had them wrapped up in some kind of burlap sack or something like that. And the same thing with her arms. She had her arms covered and, and wrapped in, in cloth and cotton or whatever it was. And, and she was bleeding because her arms and legs had burst. The skin had burst, and so she was bleeding through these bandages, had to change them constantly. Everywhere she had stepped, she'd leave a bloody footprint. Well, she came up into his room. She had some knowledge of what the Bible said about healing. He laid hands on her, the 254th person that the great healer saw, laid hands on her, and she was instantly healed, walked out, and everybody saw it. Now, I dare say that all 253 people before her that preceded her wanted to be prayed for. That's why they came. Well, why didn't he? See, some people look at that and say, well, that healing stuff's not for everybody. Well, it's for everybody that believes. It's for everybody that's prepared to receive. But she was the first one that he got to that was prepared to receive. He spent the next six or eight hours going through the rest of the crowd, and she was the only person in the whole bunch that he prayed for out of the other hundreds that were left. I think sometimes we make a mistake trying to pray too quick. We kind of throw it out there. It's almost like some people think faith is a gamble. If we'll just be bold enough to jump out there, God has to show up. Well, folks, i got some experience with that. I've jumped out into some things that God didn't show up for. And it's real easy to talk yourself into to, to boldness. It's real easy to talk yourself into, well, bless God, if the word's true, then God will come through. Really? Does he come through just because you challenge him? That's where the devil tried to take Jesus. When the devil tempted Jesus, he said, if you're the son of God, command these stones to be made bread. Well, Jesus was the son of God, wasn't he? Well, then why didn't he do something? Jesus was taken by the devil up to the pinnacle of the temple. He said, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down, because the Bible even says that the angels will catch you. Wouldn't it have been a silly thing for Jesus to throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple? But see, that's what a lot of people seem to try to do. They want to prove something. They want to prove God is with them. They want to prove the Bible is true or whatever. Folks, nowhere did God ever say, go into all the world and prove that there is a God. Nowhere did he say, go into all the world and prove the Bible is true. Never. Yeah, but some people will say God will sometimes just do things like that just to show that it's right. Well, let me ask you a question. Could we get somebody saved if they didn't believe in Jesus? Paul talked about that in Romans chapter 10. He said, how can they believe in him in whom they've not heard? Faith is necessary to receive salvation, just like it's necessary to receive anything. How come God doesn't save some people just to prove that salvation is right? But he won't. What about the baptism of the Holy Ghost? Why doesn't God just fill some people with the Holy Ghost just to prove that tongues is, is for today? He won't. No more than he'll heal people just to prove that healing is right. It takes faith to receive. It takes faith to receive on every level. Who has believed our report? And to whom is the hand, the arm of the Lord revealed? To the ones that believe. To the ones that believe. Folks, it is just as sure that Jesus took your infirmities and bore your sicknesses as it is that he took your sins. Now, if somebody came into the room, no matter what their past was, no matter what sin that they had committed or whatever, would any of us question it on any level, in any way whatsoever, that if they're sincere about believing that Jesus came to the earth and died on the cross, and if they were sincere in accepting him as their Savior, would anybody question God's willingness to save them? 
Well, then why do people question God's willingness to heal? It's the same scripture, same price, same blood of Jesus that was shed for both. Why do we question healing? The answer is simple, and that is because we've been taught wrong. But thank God there's a cure for that. It's called the Bible. Surely. He has borne our sicknesses and carried our transgressions or carried our pains. Surely he has borne our sickness. He was bruised for our iniquities. Wounded for our transgressions. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. We are healed. Now, the Bible, I'm sorry, the devil will try to tell you that's not true because of your circumstances. He'll try to tell you that's not true because of what's going on in your flesh. He'll try to tell you that's not true because of this person that didn't receive or that person that didn't receive or whatever else he tries to convince you with. But the fact is, it's true no matter whatever else happens. If I ever receive my healing, if I never receive healing for something, the Bible is true. If you never receive healing for something, the Bible is still true. If nobody ever receives healing for something, the Bible is still true. It's true because it's the Word of God, and the Word of God gives us a true account of what Jesus paid for. He paid for your sins, He paid for your sicknesses, and He paid for your poverty. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for Your Word. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for taking the price, paying the price for sin, sickness, and poverty. We thank you, Father, for making Jesus sick, for making him to be sin, for making him to be poor, all for our sake. For the divine exchange that took place, we traded our sins for his righteousness. We traded our poverty for his riches we traded our sickness for his health father we accept your word to be true no matter what we feel about it no matter what we think because faith is not of the feelings and faith is not of the mind faith is a choice to believe and we choose to believe your word is true we thank you lord jesus that you are just as much our healer as you are our Savior from sin. Because you saved us from sickness at the same moment that you saved us from sin. Now say this after me. Let your heart agree with it. Close your eyes and say, make this confession after me. Jesus, you are my Lord and Savior. I believe that you paid the price for sin. That the Father made you to be sin. So that I might be made righteous. Therefore. I declare. That I am righteous. In the sight of God. I believe. That God made you to be poor. So that I might be made rich. Therefore. I declare. That the riches of heaven are mine. That everything I put my hand upon prospers I declare that the blessing of God is mine no matter how it looks or how I feel and I believe that God made Jesus to be sick 
for my sake. Therefore, I declare that I am healed by the stripes of Jesus, by the precious blood, the same blood that cleansed me from sin has healed me from sickness. I declare that I walk in health and that I am healed from every sickness and every disease in the name of Jesus. Satan has no right to put sin, poverty, or sickness upon me because Jesus paid for them all. Thank you, Father, that I'm righteous, rich, and healed. In Jesus' name, amen. If we do the same thing that that Baptist woman did, just simply accept it to be true because God said so, and add our faith to it by thanking Him for the answer, no matter how it looks or how it feels or anything else, for all three of those things, you'll start walking in righteousness. You'll live up to the righteousness that you've been made. You'll live up to the riches of God, the riches of heaven that Jesus paid the price for, and you'll walk in health. It's an impossibility for it not to work. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it says the word of God is quick and powerful. Another translation says full of life and power. Full of life and power. When you say what God's word says, your life becomes full of life and power. Your flesh becomes full of life and power. Your finances become full of life and power. It's an impossibility for it not to work. There's nothing big enough. There's nothing in this earth that's strong enough to keep it from working if you hold on to the truth of it. That's how real God's word is. Amen? Amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us.